0: On June 27th, 1998, the forecast for the Tampa Bay area was predicting more beautiful sun-drenched weather. A perfect day for a hard-working businesswoman and mom like Vicki Robinson to slow things down and enjoy a leisurely Saturday with two of her favorite people, a morning meet-up with her best friend Deborah and an afternoon beach date with her boyfriend Jim. But when Vicki failed to meet up with either of them, they knew something was terribly wrong. Join me now. As we take a look into the sudden disappearance of Vicki Robinson, a 49-year-old divorced mother working hard to raise her two daughters, hopeful for a second chance at her happily ever after. In this tragic case, you'll hear how a mother's attempt to keep her teen daughter on the straight and narrow became every parent's worst nightmare. With its beautiful weather and world-famous attractions, Tampa has become one of the top tourist destinations in Florida. It's also the place where Christina Crane decided was a perfect place to raise a family. It's where she met her high school sweetheart, launched her successful career in radio broadcasting, and gave birth to her son, Finn.
1: I've lived in florida my entire life i was born in tampa raised in tampa my mom was born in tampa and raised here so i'm the second generation native Tampa. and with the exception of four years in gainesville at the university of florida for college i have lived in tampa decided to come back here got my first major commercial radio job here in tampa I wouldn't think of living anywhere else, um, especially the days you'll look on the weather report and say someone in Chicago is freezing their rear off in 20 degrees and it's 87 sunny and breezy here. It really is paradise. I get to live where people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to vacation and I'm paid in sunshine and I'll take it all day long.
0: Although Tampa is full of things to do, from incredible outdoor and water adventures to its bustling nightlife, it also offers idyllic family suburbs, such as Carrollwood.
1: Carrollwood to Tampa is about, from downtown, it's about nine miles north, and it was one of the original suburbs of Tampa. When you think of the traditional suburban life, and about 70s, early 80s, it really kicked in and started expanding. And it's one of those places that mostly it's just upper middle class families, great place to raise kids. They have a lot of activities, parks and rec. It's just one of those kind of idyllic suburban towns that you would see on any given television at any given time. Very normal, pretty darn quiet, and um, a really safe place to raise your family.
0: In the 1990s, Hollywood seemed to have developed a fascination with American suburbia and released a slew of movies about middle-class Americans living among pristine streets lined with cookie-cutter homes. Carrollwood was exactly such a place. Even the neighboring town of Lutz was used as the film location for Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands because of how perfectly it captured the setting of a utopian suburb. It's all the reasons why Vicki Robinson thought Carolwood would be the perfect place to raise her two daughters. But in the summer of 1998, Carolwood's picturesque image would be shattered. On June 27th, 1998, Vicki Robinson had made plans to meet up with her best friend, Deborah. But as time passed and Vicky never showed, Deborah became worried and made several attempts to get in touch with her. She got no response. For someone as reliable as Vicky, it just wasn't like her. Later that afternoon, Vicky's boyfriend, Jim Anglert also became concerned when Vicky didn't show up for their planned beach date. After failing to reach her on her cell, Jim decided to go over to her house and check in on her. But when he knocked on the door, there was no answer. Fearing the worst, Jim called police. But when they entered Vicky's home, they found no traces of Vicky or her 15-year-old daughter, Valesa. They also didn't see any signs of foul play. However, Jim noticed a couple of strange things that alerted him in the garage. Vicky's minivan was missing, and even more curiously, so was a large plastic trash can. Jim also noticed that Vicky's bed was unmade, a small detail, but one that seemed remarkably out of character for a meticulous and orderly woman like Vicky. Shortly after searching Vicky's home, Tampa police issued a missing persons bulletin for both Vicky and her daughter, Valesa. Christina Crane, who was co-hosting Sarasota's longtime top-rated morning radio show at the time, first became aware of the disappearance, just like everyone else, through the local news. But it didn't take long before even their morning show that usually focuses on lighter topics to help bring some sanity to Tampa and commuters found themselves following the case as well.
1: In June of 1998, I was co-host of a radio show, is Jones and Crane on WSRZ in Sarasota. And we had been together about three years by that time. And our show was topical. It was a lot of improv. It was light comedy. It was good for families when they were driving in to schools and stuff. So we had a dedicated news department. And when this case came up. Of course, the news department covered that. But why we started talking about it on the air was because as it unfolded, much like an onion, it just got weirder and weirder. We first started becoming aware of the case when the news broke that there was mom, Vicki Robinson, and her 15-year-old daughter, Valesa were missing. So it was kind of the lean on news outlets that, you know, they had been kidnapped. And there was obviously foul play that, you know, Vicki Robinson, she was just so grounded, um, you know, a successful real estate agent and that she would never just kind of take off. And she was very reliable. So really, at first, it was kind of a kidnapping case. And then, of course, a couple, three days later, it came out that there was this surveillance video.
0: Within 48 hours of the mother and daughter vanishing, police caught a break when they discovered someone had been using Vicky's credit and debit cards. Police then obtained video surveillance of an ATM where cash had been taken out from Vicky's account. But the footage didn't show Vicky taking out the cash. Instead, it showed 19-year-old John Wispel with Vicky's minivan in the background. John had become a close friend of Alessa's, spending a lot of time at the Robinsons' house over the past few months. Later, surveillance footage from a convenience store in Tampa showed more purchases being made using Vicky's cards again by John but now accompanied by someone else 19-year-old Adam Davis Valesa's boyfriend but there was still no sign of Vicky or Valesa police had been informed that Valesa was a troubled teen with a history of running away but no one knew if Valesa was involved in her mother's disappearance or if she was possibly a victim as well as investigators continued to follow the electronic trail left by Adam and John using Vicky's cards they could see they were headed west, heading out of the state of Florida. Four days after Vicky and Valesa disappeared, police caught another break when an anonymous woman called 911, telling an operator she'd just spoken to Adam on the phone. Got a uh, phone call from Adam. Adam Davis, and he said that they were heading to Arizona. Um, he said that uh, Valesa was with him. Yes. And that uh, she's okay now. Yes. Is she? Uh, yeah, she, she's okay. Adam had also confessed to the caller that he knew what had happened to Vicky Robinson. He had killed her, and both John and Valesa were in on it. You said something about her being in on me. She didn't, you know, say stop, don't hit my
1: mom. She, I don't, I, I don't know.
0: And she didn't like freak out when I was home, like ended up dead. So. And did, did they indicate uh, how they killed her? Um, no, they didn't. Investigators soon tracked the credit cards all the way to West Texas. Sheriff Bruce Wilson, who had been following the case, believed the minivan would be traveling west on Interstate 10 and decided to set up a trap near Fort Stockton. That's where he, a deputy and a state trooper, waited patiently for the van to appear. As the minivan drove past, Sheriff Wilson turned on his siren and pulled up behind it, hoping the vehicle would pull over without a fuss. But the van kept its course, and a high-speed chase ensued
1: like everyone else i'm watching the news and they broke in this car chase that happened in midland texas it was all filmed and and caught on the dashboard camera of the highway patrol in texas and it was an amazing thing to watch because you thought these guys are going to roll over crash bad and we're never going to know the story
0: suddenly the minivan swerved into wilson's cruiser threatening to push it off the road that's when the sheriff ordered the deputy sitting in the passenger seat to shoot at the tires of the van. As the deputy leaned out of the window with the cruiser racing down the interstate after the minivan, he managed to put a bullet into each of the tires. As helicopters flew overhead and the minivan finally came to a stop, three suspects emerged: Adam Davis, John Wispel, and Valessa Robinson.
1: The fact that all three of them tumbled out of the car fine without a scratch was kind of a miracle itself. But they showed that footage over and over and over on the local news. I mean, just for days, the fact that the car didn't roll, the fact that they were able to, you know, blow out the tires as well as they did. And then the fact that the arrest came and almost immediately fingers started pointing and just the shock of it. You know, seeing the, and they were kids, basically, you know, two adult males and a 15-year-old girl getting arrested in Midland, Texas, on their way to Arizona. And being from here, and because of that high-speed chase and that particular video, it just, it went national, and it went national fast.
0: When Sheriff Wilson put Veles in handcuffs, he had one question for her. Where's your mother? Her answer stunned him. And would send shockwaves throughout Carrollwood and the Tampa Bay area for years to come. In many ways, Vicki Robinson was the embodiment of the suburban mom of the 90s blonde feathered hair reminiscent of Farrah Fawcett, involved in the church and an active social life.
1: Vicki Robinson was so well respected in the community. She was a devout Christian. She had her own business, she was a businesswoman, she was a real estate agent, successful.
0: But perhaps most typical of all was the rebellious teenage daughter Vicky had been struggling to deal with.
1: Vicki Robinson had been divorced when Valesa was 11, and I believe Michelle was 13. And the divorce hit Valesa pretty badly. Her father ended up in Missouri. But her mom, of course, I didn't know her personally. But everyone described her as such a sweet, kind soul that devoted her heart to the church the community and the number one thing she devoted her heart to were her two daughters and i think that she stayed up many nights just absolutely worried and terrified for the present and the future of Vanessa, just trying to figure out and not giving up on her child
0: vicky and her ex-husband chuck divorced in 1994 an event that marked a major turning point in valessa's behavior from then on Vanessa began distancing herself from her mother and anything she encouraged her to do, namely attending church or being part of the youth group. Vicki stressed over how to best help her daughter without pushing her farther away. At age 12, Vicky even allowed Valesa to join a local heavy metal band made up of young guys in their 20s, a far cry from the church choir she was now refusing to be a part of. Although tuition costs were high and Vicky often struggled to pay the bills, Valesa and her sister Michelle had been attending a reputable private school in the Tampa Bay area. Vicky worked tirelessly to afford it, but wanted to make sure her children had the best opportunities in life. But it wasn't long before Valesa began misbehaving at school, and eventually Vicky was called in to discuss Valesa's misconduct. Valesa was on the verge of being expelled. Outside of her behavior, the new goth look Valesa had adopted didn't exactly make it easy for her to fit in at the private school. That's when Vicky decided to enroll her at the nearby public school to begin ninth grade. She hoped her daughter would have an easier time blending in and meeting new friends, but things only got worse, much worse.
1: Valesa was a very troubled teen, very rebellious into things that she definitely should not have been doing at the age of 15.
0: At 15, Valesa became sexually active, started drinking alcohol and using drugs, began shoplifting, and even sneaking out of the house. Sometimes she wouldn't come back for a day or two. But Valesa's rebelliousness was about to be taken to a whole other level. When in October of 1997, she met 18-year-old Adam Davis. Within a week of meeting, Valesa wrote in her diary that she'd already fallen in love with him. Vicki was understandably concerned about her underage daughter dating an adult, especially a guy like Adam, whose life didn't seem to be heading in the right direction. The high school dropout and drug dealer had a criminal record and was called rattlesnake by friends. Adam's earlier years had been rough, abandoned by his mother at age two, He lived with his father until he died in a tragic motorcycle accident when Adam was only 13. He spent the rest of his adolescence living with a series of distant relatives and in foster homes. Within the first month of Valesa and Adam's new relationship, Vicky couldn't help but feel relieved when Adam was sent to jail for grand theft auto and burglary. Although Vicky and Valesa's relationship didn't really seem to improve much, Adam was now out of the picture, at least for the next six months. But the time apart did nothing to keep Valesa from obsessing over Adam and as soon as he was released from jail, the two picked up right where they left off. Except now, Adam was 19. On May 11th, 1998, Valessa made an entry in her diary that would shock any parent. Since Adam's been out, we've made love eight times. We're trying to get me pregnant because I want to have a baby so bad. Vicki had flipped through the pages of Valessa's diary, hoping to find some clue about what was going on in her daughter's life. Unprepared for what she would find, when she came across what Valesa had written about becoming pregnant, Vicky became enraged and tore the pages out of the diary to confront her daughter with. Around that time, Adam and Valesa tried running away together, but when police caught up with the couple, Adam was charged with statutory rape.
1: The age of consent in Florida is 18. And if parents don't approve of a relationship in Florida, they can have whichever one is older arrested.
0: It's unclear why Vicki hadn't had Adam charged earlier, but Christina Crane explains why many parents try to use this as the last resort when trying to dissuade their children from pursuing an inappropriate relationship.
1: What happens a lot of times is if you don't approve of the boyfriend and you try to separate them, they're like magnets. They just go back together harder so you hope that it naturally works its way out sometimes that doesn't happen the girl or the guy doesn't see for what it is and then you kind of go to that next step and it's out of desperation to try to do what's best for your family and what's best for your child It's kind of like a last step but you know when you're on that track and you're just desperately trying to get your child back into the fold i can absolutely see somebody trying to press charges
0: Although Adam was taken to jail, he was soon released while awaiting trial. Vicky now was completely at her wits' end about what to do with her daughter, who'd become impossible to control. But Vicky refused to give up on Valesa. She had faith there was hope on the horizon. Vicky and Valesa's father, Chuck, had actually been secretly making plans to send their daughter to a Christian year-long residential program for troubled teen girls called Steppenstone Farm. In fact, Vicki had filled out the application way back on October 13, 1997, just a few days before Valesa even met Adam. When asked on the application what the child's challenges were, Vicki wrote, runs away from home on weekends so she can do whatever she wants to do has taken acid and marijuana stole two cds truancy from school poor grades disobedient to mother almost impossible to handle going down the wrong road fast vicky lived in constant fear that if she didn't allow valessa to see adam the two might simply run off together again as valessa's defiant behavior continued to increase vicky was trying everything to keep whatever peace she could between them She just needed to make it to July 7th, the date Vicky was scheduled to drop Valesa off at Stepping Stone, a date that couldn't come soon enough. Whether or not Valesa knew about her mother's plans remains unknown, although Valesa maintains she had no clue. As Vicky and Chuck made plans to drop their daughter off at the program, Valesa and Adam were making secret plans of their own. On Thursday, June 25th, Valessa called her boss at McDonald's and said she wouldn't be coming into work on Saturday. The next day, Adam told his boss at the local Denny's restaurant the same. As it turned out, Vicky's plans to rescue her daughter from going down the wrong road fast would be 10 days too late. July 7th, 1998 would not be the day Valessa arrived at the Stepping Stone Farm. Instead, it would be the day of Vicky Robinson's funeral. On Friday, June 27, 1998, Valesa, Adam, and their mutual friend John Wispel were all hanging out at Vicki's home, eating and swimming in the pool. Vicki had spent much of the day with the teens, driving them around town while she ran errands. Over the past few months, the three friends had become virtually inseparable. Around 11.30 p.m. that night, Vicki's boyfriend Jim talked about their plans to spend the next afternoon together at the beach before kissing her goodnight. Just before leaving, he offered Adam and John a ride home, a not-so-subtle indication it was time for the boys to leave. But the guys declined his offer and left on their bikes. But instead of going home, they rode out to the nearby Denny's, where they waited for Valesa. Valesa needed to wait until her mother fell asleep before sneaking out to meet up with them on her bike, like she'd done so many times before. While the guys waited, Adam chatted with a familiar waitress about getting their hands on some ecstasy. After making a call to her boyfriend, the waitress told Adam that although she couldn't get them any ecstasy, she could get them some LSD. Once Vales arrived at Denny's, the three of them left to pick up and take the acid. Later, they returned to the diner for some late-night food and orange juice believing an old urban legend that mixing LSD with OJ could enhance their high. While they sat in the booth, Valesa suddenly had an idea and suggested they kill her mother. Although John thought it was a joke at first, it didn't take long before the threesome were throwing around ideas of how to do it. With Adam's pending case coming up and acid coursing through their systems, they concluded that killing Vicky and running away might be the only way for the three of them to be together. As they brainstormed the best way to murder Valesa's mom, they decided it would be to inject Vicky with enough heroin to cause an overdose. That way it would look like an accident. But in order to track down some heroin, they needed a car. As Vicky slept, Valesa and the guys headed back to her house, silently pushing Vicky's minivan out of the garage. Although they weren't successful at buying any heroin, they were able to get a needle and syringe. Adam decided that injecting Vicky with a concoction of bleach and air would be just as deadly. When they returned back to Valessa's home, they parked a few blocks away, making sure not to wake up Vicky. Once they quietly snuck into Valessa's bedroom, Adam filled up the syringe. Half bleach, half air bubble... As Adam and Valessa headed for Vicky's bedroom, John stayed behind. In one hand, Adam carried the syringe, and in the other hand, held the pocket knife. But as they walked to Vicky's room, she suddenly woke up, and the couple ran back to Valessa's bedroom to hide with John. Seconds later, there was a knock on Valessa's door. There, standing in the hallway, dressed in a peach-colored nightgown, was Vicky knocking. As she knocked again, the door finally swung open. Vicky saw that the two boys were still at her house. She told Valesa to grab her sleeping bag and insisted she spend the rest of the night sleeping in her room. As Adam handed Valesa her sleeping bag, Vicky began walking back to her room, hoping the issue was solved. She only made it as far as the kitchen. The next thing she knew, an arm reached from behind her trapping her in a sleeper hold it was adam but he wasn't alone as he attempted to render her unconscious valessa helped by holding her mother down as vicky helplessly lay on the floor adam took out the syringe and stuck it in her neck but when vicky continued to struggle adam suddenly realized the bleach injection wasn't working it was at that point john emerged from the bedroom and handed Adam the pocket knife, suggesting he use it before retreating back to Valessa's bedroom. The next time John saw Adam, his hands and the knife were covered in blood. Thinking Adam had killed Vicky, the three teens sat in Valessa's bedroom smoking cigarettes until they heard sounds coming from the kitchen. It was Vicky moaning. Adam then grabbed the knife again and headed back to the kitchen, stabbing Vicky two more times. Using the rest of the bleach, Adam, John, and Valesa thoroughly cleaned the kitchen with towels, leaving no visible trace of the murderer. Then they stuffed Vicky's body headfirst into a large plastic trash can Adam had brought in from the garage. Next, they placed the trash can along with the bloody towels and some shovels in Vicky's minivan. Out near where John lived was a remote wooded area they decided would be the perfect place to hide Vicky's body and the evidence. As they drove out, they found an access road where they used a bolt cutter to break the lock and chain off the gate. When they came to the secluded area, John and Adam attempted to dig a hole to bury Vicky's body, but the ground was much harder than they had expected, and they gave up. Instead, they hid the trash can containing Vicky's body under a pile of dense subtropical foliage. But before completely fleeing the area, the teens headed back to Valesa's home to retrieve her mother's credit cards, debit card, and some cash. Valesa knew the pin to all her mother's cards, and for the next several days, they hid out in nearby Ybor City.
1: Ebor City, if you aren't from here, it might sound like a very strange city. It might sound like a very strange name. It's actually Ebor was the last name of Jose Vicente Ebor, which was a Cuban immigrant. And he came and kind of founded Ebor City or basically, you know, the area around. During the turn of the century, which was in the 1900s, it was a huge immigrant population, a destination for Spanish Cubans and Italian immigrants. The Cubans brought the cigar making, and that's why it's called the cigar capital of the world. And they had these huge cigar factories down there. But the other thing Ybor City had was gambling and liquor during Prohibition. In fact, Ybor City, it's about a half mile from Port Tampa. There are underground secret tunnels that were built to smuggle liquor during Prohibition. It's always had kind of a dark underbelly. During the day, it's beautiful. It's a national historic landmark, by the way. Shops and very historic restaurants and cafes. And it's very diverse and it's beautiful during the day. It's, it's just rich. The texture is rich in culture at night. Like they say, that's when the freaks come out. I would say Ybor City at night in one word, seedy. In another word, party. I mean, that is just clubs and nightclubs and bars. And there's just debauchery everywhere you can find very loaded with Picasson and tattoo parlors, a lot of them down there. So when you want, maybe you're young or single, or, or you know, you're know you just into the underground lifestyle, Ebor City is the destination for you.
0: Once in Ybor City, Adam, John, and Valesa used Vicky's credit cards to rent a motel room and party. They also used her money to buy drugs, watch pay-per-view movies, and get tattoos and piercings. Adam also bought Valesa a gold ring from Walmart so they could pretend to be married. Next, they purchased 20 bags of concrete. The plan was to return to the wooded area where they'd hid Vicky's body and pour concrete into the remaining space inside the trash can before dumping it into a canal. But when one of Adam's friends living in Ybor City informed them, he'd seen the TV news reporting police were looking for them. The trio decided to ditch their plan and leave town as soon as possible. Their destination, Phoenix, Arizona. As they headed west, they continued using Vicki's bank carts the entire time. After the high-speed chase ended with their arrests in West Texas, Adam, Valesa, and John were immediately separated and interrogated. While being transported back to Tampa, Adam told another detainee, he and Valesa were the Romeo and Juliet of the 90s. A young teenage girl and older boy, determined to do whatever it took to be together. Perhaps the analogy was more apt than Adam realized. Shakespeare's Romeo killed himself when he mistakenly believed Juliet was dead. His misguided dramatic gesture ensured in the end, the two lovers would never be together again. When Adam, John, and Valessa were dragged out of Vicky's stolen minivan, it was the last time the couple would ever be together. In fact, the three of them would never see each other again outside of a courtroom. During their interrogations, Adam, John, and Valesa each separately confessed to the brutal murder of Vicki Robinson. But they were all telling three very different stories.
1: It was just shocking. Absolutely shocking to find out that her daughter and these two 19-year-old men had committed this crime. At first, you know, Valesa was saying that she did everything. She was trying to protect her boyfriend. And then John was like, well, yeah, they did it, but I was in the room. And Adam was saying, no, wait a minute, all three of us participated. So that's when everybody was kind of scratching their heads going, okay, who really did it? Who was present? Who was just kind of helping out? And there were a lot of questions and a lot of those questions got answered during the trials.
0: The one detail they did all agree on was exactly where they'd hidden Vicky's body, all drawing their identical maps of the location. After detectives informed Tampa police of the location, Tampa Bay news stations were reporting the discovery of Vicky's remains by morning. Later in the evening, on the same day Vicky's body was discovered, Valesa returned to Tampa, where news cameras were waiting to catch a glimpse of her as she was escorted in handcuffs into a police car.
1: When the cameras were on Valesa when she was taken out of juvenile detention, her first line to the press was, I'm just glad to be out of juvenile. Very, very curt. And basically she was just showing this really, you know, faux strong appearance of, yeah, kids jail was too soft for me. I'm glad to be in the adult jail where I belong, you know, and she's only 15. So very rough exterior, all black clothing, very rebellious, everything that you can think of that would be the antithesis of how she was presented at trial. This past year has been really stressful for a lot of people. I know we've certainly felt that, both of us as parents and our kids as well, and we've all been trying to cope with it in different ways. Someday-
0: Adam and Valessa attempted to keep in contact with each other while awaiting their trials in separate prisons, even though any communication between the two had been strictly forbidden by a judge. To get around it, they'd call one of their friends on the outside, who'd then connect the two over a conference call if one of them wasn't available, their friend had a voice recorder so they could leave long messages to each other. But it wasn't long before they got caught and their phone privileges were taken away. As the long months passed by, Valesa continued writing letters to Adam, desperately trying to get them to him. But Adam started writing to someone else, another woman. Whenever asked, Adam would still profess his love for Valesa. But soon people started noticing it no longer looked like he really meant it. In November of 1999, Adam went on trial for the first-degree murder of Vicki Robinson. If convicted, he was facing a possible death sentence. Even during opening arguments, the defense team admitted Adam had indeed killed Vicky. However, their argument and their only defense was that the murder was not premeditated. It would be the testimony of John Wispel that would seal Adam's fate, because John had taken a plea deal in exchange for his testimony. He agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder and served 25 years in prison, waiving his rights to any appeals. Between John's testimony and Adam's taped confession to police, the jury was convinced and convicted Adam of murder in the first degree. He was then sentenced to death by a vote of 7 to 5 at the time. Florida didn't require a unanimous jury to hand down a sentence of death. The trial of Valesa Robinson began on April 12, 2000. She was also facing charges of murder in the first degree, but because she was a juvenile, wasn't facing the death penalty, but still could potentially get life in prison. When Valesa entered the courtroom, her family members hardly recognized her. They'd always known her as the edgy teenager who wore black clothes and dark makeup. Instead, they saw a regular 17-year-old girl, dressed like a preteen, heading to church on a Sunday.
1: At trial, she had a public defender. Her name was Deanne Athan. And I'll never forget, because when the news started showing bits and pieces of the trial, Valessa looked like an 11-year-old schoolgirl. Deanne Athan did such a great job. She gave her cute little skirts, little cardigan sweaters. Her hair was cut and it was kind of flattened down a little bit. All the wisps were gone. She had literally barrettes and sometimes little bows in her hair. In fact, one time she actually came to court in little black Mary Janes. She looked like she was 11 years old and it was absolutely on purpose. It was calculating
0: the defense planned on making the argument that Valessa was a sweet, innocent young girl that had been taken advantage of by a corrupt, much older man. And each day, they dressed her perfectly for that role. Sitting there in the courtroom, Valesa appeared to be the kind of girl Vicky had always hoped her daughter to be. What she refused to be for her mother when she was alive, she now embraced for her own defense. The defense team caught a break... When the judge refused to let the prosecution admit Valesa's diary into evidence, a journal that would suggest Valesa's corruption, the sex, drugs, drinking, stealing, and running away, had all started long before she'd ever met Adam. It was a decision that would help the defense continue to portray Valesa as a victim instead of a murderer. After closing arguments, the jury struggled to come to a verdict. Some believe Valesa was guilty of first-degree murder. Others thought mere manslaughter was appropriate. Then there were those who were divided. In the end, the jury made what is widely accepted to be a compromise verdict, and Valesa was found guilty of murder in the third degree and sentenced to 20 years in prison.
1: The sentence that she ended up with was nowhere near where most everybody thought it should be. I truly believe, personally, that it had a lot to do with her appearance and how it influenced the court. Oh, this poor little girl, she was led astray. She was so soft and innocent before Adam Davis. No, absolutely no, she was not.
0: Christina describes what she believes was the overall feeling by the community on the different degrees of sentencing the three accomplices received for Vicky Robinson's murder.
1: I think the feeling of the community, I'm not sure about the national audience, but I know most everyone in Tampa thought that the trial for Valesa was kind of not a joke, but it was not equitable. What happened with Adam Davis? You know, he was convicted of first degree murder. He was sentenced to death. John Whispel, he has a chance at life after 25 years, which I think most people thought was was pretty fair. But then Valesa, what did she get? Like 15 years, then plus five for the theft or something like that. And then she got out two years early. So here she is in her early thirties. She's been able to go on with her life. If it were a case of, you know, this innocent lamb and she had no idea of what was going to go on, but that was not the case. And it was proven that she did hold her mom's legs down while she was being murdered. So I think, and a lot of people think, that her sentence was relatively light compared to the rest. And that just seemed unjust.
0: John Wispel spent 20 years behind bars and was released in 2019. But a string of incidents in 2020 involving domestic battery placed him back in jail again. Adam Davis' new sentence is still pending, but there hasn't been any indication if the state will attempt to resentence him to death. Felessa Robinson was released in 2013, and according to Facebook posts, appears to be trying to live somewhat of a normal life. She has a job, a car, and condo, and in 2016, posted a photo of her newborn son.
1: You know, a lot of kids go through a very rebellious, independent time. I know I did when I was young, and I did things that I'm not really proud about, but thankfully, I grew out of. And, you know, Valesa was alcohol, drugs, anything that you want to think of that she could do, which a lot of kids do. But I think it was a perfect storm because she was already on a bad track. And then she met someone that was really on a worse track. So it was kind of like gasoline and fire combining. And it was a perfect storm. Then they had someone that was kind of on the neutral side. And this triumvirate came together and was able to pull off a murder that maybe, individually, they would have never done. But collectively, they had the energy to pull it off, to commit this horrible, tragic crime.
0: It's impossible to know what's in Valesa's heart today, or what Vicki Robinson would think if she were able to speak from the grave. Many of Vicky's friends and family believe Valesa should have spent the rest of her life behind bars. But one of Vicky's closest friends, Ed Phillips, Is convinced Vicky would have wanted Valesa to be given a second chance. When asked, he told reporters just how forgiving he believes Vicky would be. He was quoted saying, I'm sure Vicky would end up putting her arms around her daughter, hugging her, forgiving her, and reconciling a relationship. She's a mother of Valesa, who is now a mother. There's a lot of feelings, a lot of love there too. Boy, would she like to be a grandmother. Christina Crane reflects on the case as a mother herself, raising a 10-year-old son who will one day enter into his teenage years, a coming of age so many parents dread.
1: And you know, now that I'm a mother, I have a 10-year-old son, I think about what maybe Vicky could have done differently. And I'm not sure that she could have. You know, she was divorced. She was the sole breadwinner for two daughters. So she had to work, obviously, and support her family. That's just kind of a fact of life. And from what I understand from Vicky, she had just such a kind, loving, gentle heart that I think that she was working so hard to get Valessa on the right track. Some kids respond to that. Other kids, I believe, like Valessa, they do not. And they just decide, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it. And as a mom, I'm scared to death of that. What do you do? You can't lock them up for the rest of their lives. You do the best you can with as much love as you can. And then you just kind of breathe and hope for the best. But it's, it's terrifying to me as a mother, but you know, you do the best that you can. And I truly believe that Vicki did the best that she could in a kind, loving way and may have worked for one daughter, Michelle obviously, unfortunately, was not as successful for Valesa. It's really scary as a mother, and it's so sad. What a tragedy. What a tragedy, because I was a 15-year-old girl once, and yeah, it was a really tough time, but I am so, so grateful that when I became an adult and, you know, realized how much I loved my mother and had so many wonderful years with her before she passed, I can't imagine missing out on that. And all it took was, you know, small reconciliation and, you know, you have your mother's love for the rest of your life. So the fact that that didn't happen is, I think, the real tragedy.
0: I want to give a huge thank you to Christina Crane for not only helping with this episode, but for recommending it as well. And we've got some new Patreon supporters we've got to thank. Jackie G, Lisa M, Lima L, Louis R, Lee C, Ms L, Kira B, Dominic S, Rhonda F, ZB, Sebastian O, Karen S, Sheila G, Jess K, Svitlana V, rebecca w colleen c cheryl and maria a and now i'd like to introduce you to the podcast living with me
1: hi it's cheryl from the living with me show go to monoano.com now and catch up as we look at pop culture film music art, and the world around us through a 90s occult and symbolic lens. Let's analyze and interpret pop culture and current events together to possibly make some sense of this wild world we're living in. Where Stanley Kubrick meets The Da Vinci Code meets Free Britney. Go to monoano.com now and catch up on living with me. That's m-o-n-o-o-n-n-o.com.
0: Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to Podcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkores. You can find them at the record label's website by going to Goldenerror .au slash G-E. G-E. I can feel
1: the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run